Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Most people are familiar with sex. Some like it, some like it a lot, and seek to engage in sex more often than others. Some people are inclined to think that the desire for too much sex, however much that may be, is due to a mental disorder and have labeled it sex addiction. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with David J. Lay, Ph.D., the author of The Myth of Sex Addiction. In this first of two conversations with Dr. Lay, the argument that sex addiction is a fraudulent concept is presented. Dr. Lay and I spoke by phone from his office in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on August 6, 2012, and began when I asked him to explain why he characterizes sex addiction as a fraud, not a mental disorder. Sex addiction is a pop psychology concept that uh, there is an industry out there um, that along with the media has convinced the American public that this thing is real. And there are lots of folks making money off of it. And uh, there are lots of people being hurt by this concept. Um, I wrote The Myth of Sex Addiction to really kind of expose that. You, you know, this the disbelief in sex addiction is something that is very common in the scientific and clinical communities. Uh, the great majority of scientists and clinicians don't believe in this. But interestingly, the general public seems to think that it's real, or at least the media presents it as real, even though in my book I talk about some of the studies that show that, you know, in essence, the general American public don't believe it's real either, even though the media uh, keep telling us it is. So why this schism? Well, uh, I, I, I think that there are a lot of things going on here. I think this is a very complex concept <clears throat> that it, its strength, you know, the strength of this myth comes from a bunch of things. One is that people are genuinely afraid of sex, you know, and, and our sexual arousal. Everybody has the experience of feeling like or thinking that they might do something foolish um, or self-destructive when they are aroused or wanting sex. And so as a result, I think everybody can then look at some of the really dangerous or foolish self-destructive behaviors that people in the public do sometimes around sex, and they can look at that and say, okay, I can understand that. I, I can understand how my sexual arousal would get away from me to the point that I couldn't control it. Um, the other thing, though, is that you know we as a society have a lot of concerns about sex, especially other people's sex. And sex addiction is a concept that is so subjective by nature that it gives people the ability to look at somebody else's sex and say they, there is something wrong with their sexuality. They are diseased. And then as a result of that disease, we get to tell them what to do. The problem is that there is a huge variation in the range of sexuality and sexual arousal across people. And the unfortunate thing here is that the sex addiction concept is being applied to groups on the basis of the degree to which that sexual arousal steps outside social norms and not because it is a disease. 
So it sounds to me like you're addressing the ego, the individual ego, that if someone else behaves in a sexual manner different than the speaker, or in the collective ego, if we're talking about it from the perspective of a religious overlay on how people should behave in a sexual manner. Very appropriately said, yeah. You know, uh, Kinsey, the sex researcher, said it best. He said, you know, the definition of a nymphomaniac is somebody who has more sex than, than the therapist. And unfortunately, that that characterization is still true today. You know, doctors and clinicians, mental health therapists, receive an incredibly poor level of training in sexuality. Um, only 30% of doctors have ta- uh, medical doctors have taken a course in sexuality. Um, uh, many clinicians, mental health clinicians, have had at best a single course in sexuality. And sexuality is a very important and, and complex part of human lives. So as a result, when, a, when somebody is sitting across the, the desk or the couch from a therapist, describing their interest in sex, the therapist is usually making that determination of, is this wrong, is this abnormal, on the basis of whether or not they, the therapist, would be interested in doing this. The thing that we've learned over the past few years, especially with things like the Internet, is that the range of sexual diversity is huge. It is so large that there, you know, there, there are people out there with, with kinks or with, with unique sorts of sexual interests that they have kept secret that we're only just now finding out about. And the really fascinating thing is that those sexual interests, in most cases, have no impact on people's lives. Um, they have no impact on, on their productivity, on their, the uh, success of their relationships, personal or professional. But the therapists don't know that. And so they see somebody with a sexual interest or a level of sexual interest that they think is is beyond them, um, and they make the determination that must be a problem. In my clinical work, I see lots and lots of people who come to me specifically because they've gone to see other therapists, and the therapist became fixated on their sexuality and wouldn't kind of stop talking about it, kept, kept going back and saying, well, this sexual interest must be your problem. But the people come see me because I'm able to say, okay, well, that sexual interest is a little out of the box, but it's not impacting your life. Now let's talk about your depression or your trauma or your personal problems that don't have anything to do with the sex. I'm able to do that because my writing and my clinical work has has allowed me to pull back and see the big picture in which these sexual variations fit into a very large grand scheme of things. Well, let's talk, if we can, about the range of sexual diversity and what is um, in the box and what is out of the box. To be absolutely honest, Barry, I don't think we even know what the box is. I don't think we know where the box is. You know, for the Internet, I think, has been an unbelievable, um, I'm going to say platinum mine or diamond mine for teaching us about the diversity of sexual interest. You know, my first book um, is called Insatiable Wives, Women Who Stray and the Men Who Love Them. And, And it's actually about female sexuality with a with a specific focus on women who go out and have sex with other men with their husband's permission and encouragement. Um, and it, it, it's a fascinating kind of concept, and nothing has been written about it before. 
the really interesting thing, you know, and if you think about like the, the Shakespeare play Othello, you know, we have thousands of years of uh, social programming that says when a woman cheats on her husband, um, there's something wrong with the husband and that the the marriage should end or the wife and the other man should be killed. So we would believe that this would be incredibly uncommon. But the really interesting thing is just over the past few years with the Internet, we have now found that pornography that depicts this, that depicts wives with other men, is the second most popular pornography on the entire Internet. It is incredibly common and popular. We never would have known that without... Uh, the diversity of, of information that is available on the Internet and without the ability of people to seek out what turns them on, and then we get to see what that looks like. Um, that range of diversity is something that we are learning about more and more every day. Well, let's talk about that range of diversity. Can you give us some examples? Sure. For instance, um, bondage and discipline um, uh, or sadomasochistic behaviors. This is commonly kind of called BDSM. For, you know, about 150 to 100 years, people have believed that, you know, being interested in the blend of pain and sex is a, is a depiction of something that is unhealthy. Um, it, it, is, it is the commingling of things like trauma with sex in a way that shouldn't be happening. Um, the, these were things that were, disor- that were characterized as disordered and sexual diseases you know, 150 years ago. But over the past couple of years, uh, multiple Scandinavian countries, multiple European countries have removed these classifications as sexual disorders because it's become acknowledged that there are people who are interested in these things who may even practice just that in their sex lives, but it doesn't have any negative impact on the rest of their life. And so uh, the, the current DSM, which is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's basically the Bible of mental disorders, it is currently being revised to try and reflect that because we as a society, or at least we as a mental health group, are starting to acknowledge that that range of sexual diversity interests, that range of variations that people like to pursue, um, is very broad and is not necessarily connected to mental health. This is kind of the same revolution that occurred in the 1970s when uh, the mental health organization finally acknowledged, you know, look, homosexuality or homosexual interest doesn't have any connection to mental illness or mental health. Nowadays, we're starting to recognize that as well, that there are lots of <clears throat> sexual interests um, between between two consenting people or between perhaps more than two consenting people that don't necessarily reflect mental disease. And that that's my main focus in my writing is helping people to acknowledge that even though you might not share that kink, even though you might not be interested in that, it doesn't mean that that person is unhealthy or a, a less of a person. And that, that's something that I bring out a lot in my writing about sex addiction because that that is one thing that they are doing very explicitly is that they are looking at people, and especially men, who have high levels of sex interest, but women as well who have high libido, and saying if you like sex too much, 
there's something wrong with you, that that's evidence of a disease, but it's not. It is evidence of a range of variations. There are some people who like sex a lot, and there are some people who like sex very little, but that range is just part of normal human biological and psychological variation. It's not evidence of a psychological disturbance. Well, let's uh, talk about the ability of the brain wiring to adapt. But before we get there, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with David Lay, a clinical psychologist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who's the author of The Myth of Sex Addiction. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. David, in uh, your book, The Myth of Sex Addiction, you say that any significant activity that a person engages in for a period of time leads the brain to adapt, change, and react. It would seem to me that sexual behavior in adapting, changing, and reacting is really no different than ability to learn the childhood language in which we all grow up in. The brain is constantly changing. Um, that's part of uh, that is in nature. The way in which we learn and adapt is that your brain becomes morphologically and chemically different in order to take in the information or the skills that we've gained in a certain day. And that's why you know you can learn to ride a bike and then get on a bike ten years later and still remember. The brain has changed. Now, one of the things that people are talking a lot about these days, with a lot of uh, a lot of panic, a lot of fear, is the idea that you know sex on the internet and and internet pornography is changing people's brains such that it's something they don't have control over and they don't realize that the internet is changing their brain. Well, you know what? Reading a book changes your brain. You know, using using my smartphone, using my BlackBerry has changed my brain because I've become more adept and more proficient at using it. That's not a bad thing. It's part of the way we work. It's part of the way that we get better at using things that we that we use a lot. The internet pornography um, is is something that people are using that brain-based kind of language as a way to scare people. Um, it, just like you know, back in the '80s, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs with that with that cracked egg frying in the frying pan. They're using that same kind of panic language to get people to be afraid of sex on the internet. But sex on the internet is really no different than any other stimulus out there. Is it arousing? Sure. Is it adept and proficient at triggering some of the mechanisms of human sexual arousal, things like interest in variety? Sure, it is. But it's not evil by virtue of that. But that's what people are putting out there, and they're trying to make us afraid so that then they can control us, they can, you know, these people can control what access we have to information on the Internet, and also so that they can try and exert some level of control over what kind of sex we're interested in. Let's talk about sex on the Internet and a couple of follow-ups to that so you can perhaps put them all together. What do you mean, who are the they who are trying to make us afraid, and what's in it for them? Ah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, one of the really disturbing things that I have found as I started reading and writing and researching about sex addiction 
is that this is a movement that has been absolutely taken over and hijacked by very conservative moral groups. For instance, Planned Parenthood was attacked a couple of months ago by an organization who claimed that Planned Parenthood was the equivalent of drug dealers who were pushing masturbation. That masturbation was the drug of choice that Planned Parenthood was trying to teach to kids and that they were trying to make people explicitly addicted to sex as a way to control them. Sex addiction is a concept that has simply been grabbed onto, and this brain-based fear language is something that they are using explicitly. There's, you know, there, there's a group that makes nine million dollars a year selling um, workbooks to people to try and uh, overcome addiction to porn on the internet, and this is a religious-based organization. So the the large majority of the people who are out there pushing this agenda are people who, for moral or religious reasons, have problems and issues with sexuality. Now, I'm not arguing their right to have those feelings. I'm not arguing their uh, ability or, or legitimacy in a free society to argue their point. I am arguing that they shouldn't be doing so under the guise that this sex addiction or that their problems with sexuality are a disease. They don't get to do that. They don't get to say that this is a medical or a scientific phenomenon when they are arguing on the basis of morality. The other group that has grabbed onto this is the media. And, you know, the media love to make us afraid. That's the way that they get us to tune in at 11 by showing us a little clip on the TV that says, oh, you know, this person just got in trouble for this ridiculous sexual behavior because they're addicted to sex. Could your husband or son or boss be addicted to sex? Could you be addicted to sex too? Tune in at 11. And so they make us afraid by putting out these terrifying, scary messages about the power that sex has over us as a way to sell and as a way to control us. Now, the interesting thing is that those two groups have now gotten together. And so you have all of these reality shows and you have all of these news shows where they bring on these sex addiction experts to tell us how sex is dangerous and how sex is scary and how kinky sex or liking sex too much is something that we all have to be afraid of. Um, and, and, and so the media makes money off of that by having people tune in, and then those sex addiction experts make money off of it either by selling books or by selling very expensive cash-based sex addiction treatment. Now, the interesting thing about that sex addiction treatment is that, number one, there is not a lick of evidence that it works. There is no scientific evidence whatsoever that sex addiction treatment does anything, anything certainly other than what a placebo would do, what simple time would do, or what any other legitimate mental health treatment would do. And But they are charging cash money for this treatment, sometimes on the virtue of more than a thousand dollars a day. Let's stay there if we can for a moment. Uh, what is the treatment that they seek to market? That's kind of the problem. There isn't any specific treatment that they are trying to sell. They well, what are they selling? The dic- what 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 do they give the purchaser when they give them uh, a th- for a thousand dollars a day? 
In most cases, they give them um, the equivalent of 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous-based treatment, um, where it is a spiritually-based component um, where people go in and try and use the support from other people and this concept that they are powerless over this desire, i.e. for sex, um, as a way to help them take control of their uh, of their behavior and their bad choices. In many cases... These uh, these folks are providing you know a mishmash of uh, therapeutic techniques, trying to talk about mood problems, talk about depression, talk about traumas in the past, talk about relationship problems, and simply helping people trying to learn to make better choices. Now these are all very basic and in most cases fairly useful psychological techniques, but they're nothing special to sex addiction treatment. These are things that you should be able to get from any therapist out there. But by by focusing on sex, by focusing on sex addiction, they're ignoring all of these other issues. And 70 to 90% of these people who are called sex addicts have some other issue, whether it's a personality disorder or a mood disorder or simply a disposition to make bad choices. By focusing just on the sex, all of these other problems are being ignored. And I think and unethically, I think that these sex addiction treatment folks are in many cases ignoring important mental health problems um, that they're not treating because they are so hyper-focused on sex. It would seem to me that uh, one of the things you mention in um, the chapter in your book, The Ignored Aspects of Masculinity, is the extent to which a father is involved or not involved in his son's childhood and the development of the boy's sexual impulsivity and uh, sexually risky behaviors. That is, I think, one of the hidden kind of agendas here is that the sex addiction concept is at core an attack on masculinity and masculine sexuality. They are calling, you know, things like male desire for variety, male desire for higher levels of sexuality, higher levels of libido. They're calling those things unhealthy and diseased. They're not. They are part of the differences between male and female sexuality. But instead of teaching young boys, instead of teaching young men in our society how men and women are different in sex and what they can do about that, how they can understand that and make good choices, instead they're putting out this message that um, those things, those aspects of male sexual desire are evil and frightening and uncontrollable. And so as a result, we're having, you know, a generation of men who have sexual desires that they are desperately ashamed of and don't know what to do about and try and hide. And then when they go out and pursue those hidden secret sexual desires and they get caught and get in trouble for it, we tell them, oh, that's because you're an addict. I think it's this horrible, um, circular, disturbing argument that can be counteracted by teaching men in our society how they can understand their sexuality and how they can learn to make good choices from that understanding. Well, David Lay, I want to follow that up in part two of our series on sex addiction. And as we move into the evolutionary aspects as to how we have evolved, how we're one, if not the only mammal that 
engages in sexual activity for pleasure as opposed for the sole purpose of procreation. But first, before we close part one, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about yourself. And one is, can you share with us an aha or eureka moment or an epiphany that has changed your life that you follow? You know, one of the things that really had an impact on me was right, um, when I was working on my first book about uh, about female sexuality, I interviewed this couple and, the, and this woman who had been um, traumatized in her childhood. She, she had experienced significant physical and emotional abuse um, in her family of origin. She grew up, and uh, sexuality was a way in which she uh, tried to heal herself, but it was still a very fearful kind of thing. Well, she got into a relationship with a man who became her husband, but because he never demanded that she be monogamous, um, it was only that that let her let down her guard enough to have a real intimate relationship with him prior to him. She had had you know, one relationship after another and always kept people at a distance. And as a result, I think she was very lonely. I looked at that, and I looked at this woman and her history, and I said, you know, most people out there, most therapists, would have looked at this woman with her history of, of sex work and her history of failed relationships and said sex was her problem. But in reality, sex was sex, and stepping outside some of the normal expectations of, of, of sexuality and monogamy was one of the things that let her heal. It let her overcome the history of trauma. That, for me, was a really big wake-up call as I started looking at myself and at, at other clinicians that I work with and seeing the way in which they are judging other people's attempt to adapt and overcome problems in themselves. And I think that taught me to pull back some and to look instead at what people are doing for themselves to be in control of their lives and to make decisions and to make choices that let them heal. It may not be the way that I think they should heal, but if it works, I'm okay with that. And secondly, what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? Well, you know, I'm, it had always been a childhood dream of mine to, to publish uh, and to write a book, and now I've, I've written not just one, but two. And to be honest, that, that, that's one of the questions I kind of find myself asking these days is, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? And, and, and I think as long as I am constantly asking myself, you know, what do I want to accomplish in, in the rest of my life, I get to accomplish many, many things by pursuing that question and always having it conscious in my mind. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? One of the um, uh, books that was really I impactful on me um, in writing uh, this book was a, a book called The History of Nymphomania by a writer named Carol Groenman. And she does a marvelous job of tracking the history of the concept of nymphomania throughout Western society. She really shows how this concept, nymphomania and sex addiction now, um, is just an expression of our fears and attitudes towards sexuality in women and, and how our society uses this concept to suppress female sexuality. It really had a big impact on the way I look at sex and female sexuality, and I use that concept a lot in the history of, in the myth of sex addiction. I fully recommend it to your readers. Well, David Lay, 
Thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Barry, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. David J. Lay, Ph.D., is the author of The Myth of Sex Addiction. He's a clinical psychologist practicing in Albuquerque, New Mexico, dealing with sexual issues. The book that he recommends is Nymphomania, a History, by Carol Groenman, G-R-O-N-E-M-A-N. This interview was recorded on August 6th, 2012. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.